Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Now, today I feel led by the Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, to look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, the story of our human parents, Adam and Eve, and their first sin. You know, something that for years and years, I could not figure out why God would be displeased and tell them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It didn't make sense to me until I learned from Jewish scholars what was going on here. So I want to wrestle with a question this morning. Uh, I want us to look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, and I want to wrestle with a question that Jews and Christians have wrestled with for 3,000 plus years, more than 3,000 years. Why? That's the question. Why? How could Adam and Eve have done this, but particularly Adam? Why did Adam sin? When, when, when Adam had everything, he had a beautiful wife, he had the God of the universe with whom he walked and talked in this magnificent garden in the cool of the day. He had delicious food, meaningful work, the promise of children, and happiness forever. Why? How can Adam and Eve have been so stupid? Now, if we're honest, it's what we ask when we look back at how we have sinned. Now, maybe you guys don't sin here, but, but there's a lot of sin up here, a lot of sin. And I've, and I've heard that you guys are particularly righteous. So this, this sermon I'm, I'm going to preach on Genesis 3 might not be applicable to you. I mean, you, you might not be able to relate to it. But just, just imagine that, that maybe someday you might be tempted to sin. So just imagine that, and then the sermon might be applicable to you. Uh, so sometimes we ask about ourselves, or at least I ask about my, myself, why was I so stupid? Why was I so stupid? For many of our sins, at least my sins, I look back and they don't make any sense. And almost all of us look back at Adam and Eve and we say, it made no sense for them. Or did it? Let's see. Let's look at what led up to the sin, and then let's look at the sin itself. We will see that in some ways that Adam and Eve thought it made sense at the time, even though we look, we look in hindsight and conclude it made no sense at all. Maybe if we can see how this first sin made sense at the time, but in hindsight, did not make sense, maybe 
we could better fight temptation to sin in our own lives. That would please God and move us toward greater holiness and righteousness, which should be the goal of our lives. So let's look at verse 1. And the serpent was more crafty. Now, I'm, I'm using my translation of, um, of the Hebrew. Now, Rabbi David knows far more Hebrew than I do, but I do know some Hebrew, and, I'm, and I have translated this from the Hebrew. Uh, and the serpent was more crafty than any other animal the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Indeed, to think that God said you are not to eat of any tree of the garden. Now, the serpent here uh, in the Hebrew uses the general word for God, which is Elohim, not his personal name, which is the sacred tetragrammaton, which um, in, in uh, you know, um, in contemporary translations is translated as, as the Lord, Adonai, but, but the original Hebrew is the sacred tetragrammaton. Uh, what, you know, in English uh, Gentile Bibles, uh, you know, will sometimes be read as Yahweh. But the serpent doesn't use his personal name, doesn't use the sacred tetragrammaton, the sacred four letters because the serpent is shut out from knowing God as a person. What's true for Satan is true for us, that when we rebel against God, it keeps us from knowing him personally, just as the serpent was prevented from knowing God personally and his personal name. Notice, too, Satan grossly exaggerates God's prohibition, saying, that Adam and Eve couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. Well, God said that Adam and Eve could eat from any of the thousands of trees in the garden, but that they were not to eat from the one in the middle, the tree of what is typically translated the knowledge of good and evil. This translation that bedeviled me for decades, for decades until I learned from Jewish scholars what it really means. Satan's lie, his exaggeration, creates in the woman's mind the impression that God is mean. He won't let you eat from any of the trees in the garden. Temptation to sin often does that. It suggests that God is mean or arbitrary and does not want are good. What it really says is, God does not really love you. God does not really love you. That's what the temptation typically, in one way or another, subtly suggests in our minds. God does not really love you. And this story of the first temptation is really then about God's goodness and whether we will trust God's goodness for us, for you and me. All temptation to sin comes with the offer of a lie that God has not been good to you in this situation or that situation, and that you, that you have to seize the opportunity to get what is good because God doesn't want you to have it. 
God is not really that good, is what most temptation really subtly whispers to us. God's not really that good. God does not really love you. Now, in these first six verses, most of the attention's on Eve, not Adam. And there's a reason for that, I think, which we'll see in a minute. But in the meantime, let's ask the obvious question. Why did Eve sin? Now, in this passage, we get at least five answers to that question. Why did Eve sin? And here's the first. Eve sinned because she believed that God did not love her. Then Eve remembers that God was not that bad and that Satan had actually twisted God's word. So verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. Even touch it, lest you die. Now, there are two kinds of legalism. One says that you get to heaven by obeying all of God's laws and there is no grace for disobedience. The other kind of legalism makes up laws, new laws, that God in Scripture never taught and never suggested. Eve is the first legalist. Eve here makes up a law that God did not command. God never said anything about touching the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Now, some believers think it's wrong to drink alcohol despite God saying that he gave it to us to make people happy. That's in Psalm 104:15. You might need to check that out. Now, other believers say God forbids dancing. Now, I, I don't think any believers here at Tikvot Israel believe that because I just heard you, I, I think it was, uh, um, it, it, it was Elder, now, now, something you have to understand about me. I, I'm a stutterer. I truly had a terrible, terrible stutter for most of my life. Well, for about half my life. And, and I wrote a book called Famous Stutterers, 12 Famous Stutterers from Moses to Marilyn Monroe. So occasionally in my sermon here, I'll stutter like I, 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 I did just then. So, so, so I was trying to say Elder Eric was leading us in his chant of Psalm 30, where in Psalm 30 we just chanted along with Elder Eric that the Lord turned my morning into dancing. So, so those, those believers who say dancing is against God, and you know, there are some believers who still think that, um, that's another kind of legalism, and it's not biblical. You turn my morning into dancing, verse 15 in Psalm 30. Now, Eve, Eve might have believed her own legalism. It seems like she might have. And after she didn't drop dead, after touching the tree, she seems to have concluded that God's word, therefore, cannot be trusted because she was still alive. She touched the tree, which she thought God had told her not to, and he never did tell her not to do that. And, you know, she was still standing. Even though God had promised death for disobedience. 
So she might have concluded that since she didn't drop dead, that therefore maybe God didn't mean it when he said not to touch it. And if he didn't mean it when he said not to touch it, he, he must not have meant it when he said don't eat it. Bottom line, God must not really mean what he says. But why did Eve misquote God, saying he forbade her, to, her and her husband to touch the trees when he said nothing of the kind? Apparently, Adam had not reported to her carefully what God had told him. He had not taken seriously his responsibility to be the spiritual leader of his family. So why did Eve sin? Second reason. Eve sinned because Adam was a passive husband. He did not bring God's word to her accurately. He did not protect her by going out ahead of her to fight the family's spiritual battles. This is why most scholars and many rabbis following the Apostle Paul have always regarded this first sin as Adam's sin far more than Eve's sin. Paul blames sin on Adam, not on Eve. Husbands, are you, and I ask this of myself, am I being the spiritual leader in our family? Or are you standing in the shadows, as I sometimes have, letting your wife fight the spiritual battles? Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. Notice how bold Satan is in denying flatly God's word. And tragically, Eve believed him. But no wonder she believed him. She didn't have her husband protecting her and reminding her that God's word is true and he did say that they would die if they disobeyed. So, why did Eve sin? Here, here's the third reason why Eve sinned. See, Eve sinned because she believed a lie, a lie from the devil himself that what God had spoken clearly was not true. How many of our sins today come from our believing this deceitful American culture out there through which Satan often speaks rather than the word of God? The word of Torah in Tanakh and the word of Torah in the Brit Hadashah. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, deciding for yourself good and evil. Now notice how I just translated that. This is what I learned from, 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 from Jewish scholars. Deciding for yourself good and evil. Not knowing good and evil, but deciding for yourself good and evil. And let me explain. Here we see the heart of all temptation and the heart of this first sin by our human parents. It comes from knowing the Hebrew meaning of the word for know. Most translations here say knowing good and evil. 
But Nahum Sarna, who wrote the, the commentary on Genesis in the state-of-the-art commentaries of JPS, the Jewish Publication Society, says that the root here is yada, which is an experiential knowing and deciding, which can be defined as decide for myself or decide for yourself. So listen to Satan's temptation again. Eve, you will be like God, deciding for yourself good and evil. Now doesn't that make the knowledge of good and evil make a lot more sense? And doesn't it make a lot more sense why God said don't eat of, the, of, the, of that tree? Because that's deciding for yourself what is good and evil rather than accepting what God has already told us is good and evil. That's the essence of all sin. That's the essence of all temptation. Thinking I can decide for myself what's good and evil rather and, and push to the background or suppress down below what God has already told me in my conscience and, of course, in the Ten Commandments, what's good and evil. And, you know, Paul says God has written the Ten Commandments where? On my heart, in my conscience. So before this, Adam and Eve knew only what God had said was good and evil. The devil was saying to them, in effect, why believe God? Why settle for his definitions of good and evil? Why not decide for yourself? Maybe you know better. I mean, God doesn't fully understand this situation that you're in right now. You understand it, and you're a good person. So you can figure it out for yourself. You can decide for yourself. That's the little whisper of the serpent in our heads when we're tempted, right? And this is the essence of all sin, deciding for myself what is good and evil and what is true and false. Then the tempter adds some bait to make the temptation more delicious. He suggests that disobeying God will bring positive blessings. In fact, this is a half-truth. They ate, and they did not die, at least physically they did not die. Their eyes were, in one sense, opened, and they did know evil in a way they had not known it before. But the tempter did not mention, as he never does, all the short-term terrible consequences and the long-term terrible consequences of breaking God's commandments. That they would break the agreement they had with their creator, as Rabbi David was saying, be a partner with the creator, which is a very Jewish way of putting it, being a partner with the creator. Most Gentiles don't talk that way. But the rabbis rightly talk that way they would lose the security of God's protection and his blessing. And they would bring cataclysmic suffering on their posterity forever. And that it would eventually require the monstrous, cruel death of the Messiah, God's own son. Temptation is like that. It tells us, sometimes truly, the benefits of sin but it hides from us the short and long-term terrible consequences 
of yielding to that temptation. So why did Eve sin? The fourth reason. Eve sinned because she wanted to decide for herself what is good and evil. Because she focused on the short-term benefits and not the, the short and long-term terrible consequences. Verse 6. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating and was a delight to the eyes and also desirable for gaining cleverness. So Eve wanted food, beauty, and knowledge. But all three of these she wanted in ways that were against God's way of getting them. First John 2 says, these are the three forms of temptation. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's 1 John 2.16. Food, beauty, and knowledge are all good things. But when taken in ways against God's way of getting them, they destroy our flesh, they corrupt our seeing, our, our vision. You know, we just heard about this wonderful healing uh, of El Elder Eric's eyes. And, and by the way, I, I told Jean next to me that we have to tell this woman, um, Alice, who lives behind us, is going in for the same surgery in a few weeks and she's terribly worried about it. And we're gonna tell her about your, your miracle from God. So sin, sin corrupts our seeing, it corrupts our vision, and it separates us from God and his truth. And, and here's the last part of verse 6. And she took from the fruit and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Whoa. All of a sudden now, at the very end of these six verses, after hearing about the most important event in human history, the saddest event in human history, not till the very end of this story do we hear the word he, he. All of a sudden now we hear about Adam. He's been silent in all this story, back in the shadows, silent and passive. But back in chapter 2, the previous chapter of Genesis, We'd heard everything about Adam, and God treated him back in chapter 2 as the spiritual leader in their marriage. God spoke to him in chapter 2, not to her. He named the animals, not she, and naming was an act of authority in the ancient Near East. He was created first, which Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 was significant. She was made from him, he was not made from her, which again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, is significant. And all this, by the way, he is treated as the leader in chapter 2 before the fall, not after the fall. So this business about the husband being the spiritual leader in the family, that's not uh, a punishment that comes from after the fall. No, those are all things that Paul makes very clear took place before the fall. These are part of the creation mandate, not post-lapsarian, as, theolo as, 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 the as theologians say, after the fall. No, before the fall was very clear the husband is to be the head. But here in chapter 3, in the next chapter, in this confrontation between the devil and his wife, Adam is nowhere to be seen or heard. 
He should have been protecting her from a creature who clearly was up to no good. But instead, he lets her negotiate with someone whose motives were unknown and was clearly trying to manipulate her. Where was her man? He was AWOL. But now, he's persuaded by his wife to take fruit that God had clearly commanded him not to take. She was persuaded by the devil, and he was persuaded by her. At this point, she had become his spiritual leader. Why did Adam and Eve sin? Number five, because they were dissatisfied with what they had and they wanted more. Because they were ungrateful to God for what they had and they focused on what they did not have. Conclusion, why do you and I sin? Well, maybe you don't, but why do I sin? For the same reasons that Adam and Eve sinned. We believe God does not love us. Some of us fail to exercise spiritual leadership to protect our families. We believe lies that contradict God's Torah. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and evil rather than accepting what God has said is good and evil. And because we are discontent with what God has already given us. But really, these are not explanations for why we sin. They are simply different ways in which we sin because there is no good explanation for sin. Sin is irrational. There's no good reason for it. God is good. God has shown us his goodness in a trillion ways. And I say trillion instead of a million because uh, we're, we're, we're in the days of trillion-dollar budgets now. God has showed us in a trillion ways his goodness and that his commandments are good and good for us. And all of his commandments are manifestations of love. By the way, speaking of commandments, Gentiles often say, Gentile Christians, and I'm a Gentile Christian, and lots of you are. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Messianic Gentile. Lots of you are Messianic uh, uh, Gentiles. But you know, a lot of your replacement theologians, which I used to be, say, you know, those poor Jews, they have 613 commandments that they have to live, live up to. Those poor Jews, what a burden. And of course, my Jewish friends say, no, it's a joy that God loves us so concretely with such particularity that, that we can bring God into these 613 ways into our daily lives. My friend Michael McClyman, who's also a Gentile, and I think he's the greatest historical theologian in the world, uh, teaches at St. Louis University. He just finished a book counting up all the separate commandments in the Brit Hadashah, the, the, the New Testament. Not the ones that are repeated, the ones that are separate. And guess how many commandments of Yeshua and Paul and Peter and John he found in the Brit Hadashah? Guess how many? Even more than 613. 800! Those poor Christians. 
What a burden they have. They live under having to obey 800 commandments. Those poor, those poor Gentiles. <laughs> so let us, sin makes no sense in view of God's overwhelming love. So let us learn from Genesis 3 by taking a moment now to repent of our sins. If you're a sinner, you might not be. And, uh, uh, and to beg God for light. In his light, we see light. To beg God for light, to remember his love for us, and, and to beg God for grace to walk in his ways. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the gift of repentance, to repent for any sins that might be in our life right now. Give us the grace to listen to, to, give us the grace to listen to the Ruach HaKodesh whisper to us in our conscience. Give us the light to remember your overwhelming love for us. Give us grace to walk on that narrow and hard road to eternal life that Yeshua told us about. And give us the grace to avoid the broad and easy way that leads to eternal destruction that Yeshua told us about. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen.